we are back for another episode of Regenerative Landscapes uh, with our regular hosts, Kevin Yu and Daniel Adams and myself, Don Watts. But we have somebody new in amongst us today. We have Megan Evans from the Alberta Native Bee Council. And why, you may ask? Well, that's because um, our first part of our, our episode that we did a few weeks ago was getting into pollinators, specifically the pollinator plants. And now this is part two. So we're going to be talking about specifically the pollinators. And uh, we're hoping that Megan's expertise in particularly the bee area can help us a lot here because there are a lot of uh, different pollinators within Alberta and bees make up, I think, the largest portion of those. So we'll probably be talking a little bit more about them. And sorry about that. My phone was supposed to have been turned off and it is not. So, anyway. Fired. I hate electronics. Be um, exiled from this podcast. <laughs> anyway, so I thought we'd start by, I know Kevin and Dan and myself have introduced ourselves before on other episodes, but uh, we'll do it again. But we'll start with uh, Megan, what your background is, I guess, how you got involved with uh, the pollinators, the bees, and the Native Bee Council, and what kinds of things you're doing. Sure, yeah. So, so my name is Megan Evans, and I'm the president of the Alberta Native Bee Council. Uh, we're a nonprofit society that was formed in 2017. So myself and some other fellow bee lovers uh, established uh, the nonprofit society then. And we're a really unique society as well because we are the only one of the only organizations that focuses exclusively on native pollinators, uh, native bees specifically. And so that's a really important distinction. And I think we'll probably get into that a little bit later. So I'll leave that there. Um, but my interest in bees uh, began. It's kind of a funny story. I'll try to make it quick. Um, I was an undergraduate student uh, and desperate for a summer job, <laughs> and and I wound up getting offered a job working on a pollinator project, like handling what bumblebees and, and working with bees in agriculture. But at the time, I was terrified, absolutely petrified of <laughs> bees, and I was not an insect person, not interested, uh, but I needed the job. And so I took the job, and the first week was, um, to, oh my goodness, it was so exhausting and, and terrifying and all those things. But I managed to really overcome that really, really strong fear I had of insects and of bees. Um, and now I love them. And I just kind of, it, you know, that started me on this learning journey and like learning about, you know, how important bees are, which we all know, but then starting to learn about the diversity and the life cycles and a lot of the misinformation that's out there. So, I mean, long story short, that's kind of how I started. Um, and it's, I, I continue that learning journey today and, and into the future as well. So. So that's me. Yeah. Awesome. I find that rather interesting that you actually had a, a little bit of a fear of bees to start with and you had no plans on getting into this. And then it's funny how life takes you down a different path, right? It is. <laughs> so that's really cool. Um, <clears throat> all right. And then Kevin, we know Kevin, our editor from before, but um, if you can tell us a quick little background on yourself and why you're involved with the, the nature regenerative landscape part of things and maybe your interest specifically in pollinators for today's episode? Oh, yeah. So I should just start with my interest in the pollinators, right? So um, I remember beekeeper, it's always something that I want to learn about. So maybe like after this episode, Megan can like um, just introduce me to some beekeepers so I can like go there and look to their, look, look, look at them doing their job and all those fun stuff. But anyways, uh, for myself, I uh, actually came from a very big city, uh, Shanghai, China. Um, I came here to look for a change because things were like not pretty back there. It was like super polluted. So I came to Canada to study environmental science, hoping one day I could just go back and make a change. However, after two years of studying, I just realized that uh, it's just too much for me to do if I really want to go back and apply all the stuff I learned here and back home. It's just too much. So instead, I just took the easy way out. I just decided to stay here. So why go back and do all the effort and when you can just stay here and enjoy the stuff that's already done. Uh, anyways, um, so just last year uh, when COVID happened and got the time to think about what we can do like for the community, just starting from a smaller scale to like do something good for the environment because like everyone knows we only have one Earth and then we have to do something to promote the biodiversity and sustainability and all those kind of 
good stuff. So me and Dan just got stopped talking and decided to start our own company, uh, BestQ Naturalization Corporation, just to do something on the community scale. Hopefully, like one day it can make a difference for the entire world. Um, now, how about Dan? Like, I mean, I've grown up in Edmonton my whole life. I haven't moved any anywhere since. Uh, and, I don't know, it's been pretty, no- it was pretty normal growing up uh, in Edmonton up until, uh, I think, after high school, where I took a year off and kind of decided, um, or was trying to figure out what I really want to do with my life. And I was always interested in science um, and the other end kind of gardening more as a hobby, but just kind of being out in nature and stuff like that. Uh, but a friend uh, recommended I go take this program in Lakeland uh, where they do um, environmental sciences. So I thought, well, it's something different. It's out of the city. So I'll get a little bit of a different experience. And I loved it, kind of learning about uh, all these different um, things that go into kind of the broad thing of uh, broad scope of environmental sciences. And from there, I went to, the, after doing a two-year diploma there, I went to the University of Alberta, where I did another two years to get my bachelor's in land reclamation. And again, just learning even more things about, uh, you know, soils, plants, again, all these things that make up environmental sciences and just our environment in general. Um, yeah, after that, I was working with this one company that kind of specialized in kind of the urban, taking concepts and ideas of environmental sciences and apply them on an urban scale. So doing these commercial and residential projects, trying to promote that idea of sustainability and using uh, native plants uh, to um, naturalize uh, urban areas. So, and then after that, like Kevin was talking about, uh, we got to talking and we figured, yeah, let's start our own company. So yeah, we're just in the middle of doing that now. And yeah, we're hoping that we can make some changes within the city uh, to naturalize uh, yards and yeah, just promote those uh, ideas of sustainability, regenerative landscapes, and just, yeah, making the world a better place. And in terms of pollinators, um, I always, well, at least I'm living for bees. I was always afraid of bees because when I was really young, I got stung by a bee and <laughs> I was just like, petrified and just yeah just never wanted to see another bee again and then over the years i think i just eventually started to realize uh, they're actually not that bad as long as you don't like try to whack at them or aggravate them they're usually pretty harmless so i kind of learned to appreciate them more and as i got more into doing native plant landscaping and just being out in my yard a little bit more yeah i learned to appreciate them a little bit more and saw more of them because i was planting uh, things that bees and other pollinators enjoy compared to some ornamental uh, type plants that uh, maybe didn't attract as many. So, yeah. Yeah. And then for me, I'll try to keep this short and sweet too. Um, I may not have the schooling background that the the other guys do, but I'm a curious George. So I'm always studying everything everywhere I go. I'm really into nature. Um, I've been fortunate enough to live in all different quadrants of uh, Alberta. So I've seen the prairies, I've seen the foothills. We're in the uh, uh, Aspen Parkland boreal forest area now. Um, and although things are different everywhere you go, there are some things that are also the same across the board. And uh, I'm just really conscientious of everything around me and visually uh, attracted to all the little details in, in, in these landscapes. And so um, I guess it probably helped that my dad, he was a beekeeper. Um, and I realize honeybees aren't native, but it still gave me a good insight into a lot of, uh, social bee behavior, that kind of thing. And I wasn't afraid of bees like a lot of people. Um, and then now just to be able to, uh, take it a step further and see all these cool, uh, pollinators like the sweat bees and the mason bees, and we've got hummingbirds and butterflies and moths and flies, like, you know, all kinds of different things that it's, it's just got me really excited and to be able to share pollinator plants with people is really helpful to get them into uh, native scaping because who doesn't like flowers and things that are colorful and pretty? So it's a, it's a good stepping stone to get people into native scaping as opposed to trying to sell them on something like grasses and shrubs right away because not everybody's into that until they learn more about it, right? So uh, I think it's a great thing. 
I think there's lots of opportunity and um, there's also a lot that we need to do to help our pollinators. Without further ado, we will start with the importance of pollinators. People constantly sit there going, they're just some bugs or birds or whatever. What's the big deal? Whether they pollinate something or not, or can't the wind do it or whatever, right? Um, I know from my perspective, growing food, that three quarters of flowering plants and one third of human food uh, related plants relies on pollinators, which is huge. And they help increase biodiversity, uh, feed other species. And also, some of them even help create habitat for other animals. But that's what I know. I need you guys to come in and uh, kind of get a little bit more in depth with that. I'm sure, Megan, uh, we'll start with you on uh, what your thoughts are on the importance of pollinators and your specialty, of course, with the bees. Yeah. So, you, you know, it's interesting that, that you say that. I feel like the general public has a pretty good understanding. Everyone knows that these are important and everyone knows that um, these are important because they're pollinators, right? So and this seems to be an across the board thing. People get it. They know they like bees. They want to help bees. But where the, the, it gets complicated is how do I help them? You know, what can I actually do? What tangible things can people do? Now, I say that keeping in mind that I'm biased and I'm usually talking to people that are <laughs> interested in bees to begin with. So keep that in mind. Um, also the one thing that I do want to point out is we talk about the importance of pollinators and that is a pretty obvious one, but, but I will address it. Um, but the importance of insects in general, insects mm -hmm. are absolutely critical to us as humans, not only because they provide things like pollination services, there's all kinds of other ecosystem services that these, that these insects provide to us, like things like nutrient cycling, insects play a major role along with microbes and decomposition of organic matter. Uh, they provide pest control services. They because uh, they eat other insects. They contribute a ton of biomass into our ecosystems and our food webs. Uh, even though individual insects are super, super little, there are just so many of them that, that they're a critical source of food for other wildlife and other animals. So insects in general are really, really important. And of course, bees and other pollinators are important because they pollinate. So they pollinate not only uh, the crops in our agricultural systems, which is important because that gives us more yields and helps us feed more people, also, in, in turn, provides money into farmers and producers' pockets, which is important. And they also pollinate the plants in our native systems. Uh, so those native plants then become food and wildlife for habitat, uh, food, food and habitat for, for wildlife species as well. So they are really important across the board in every ecosystem because they facilitate that plant reproduction, and that's important for a lot of different reasons. Um, but it's really important to, to, to consider all insects when we think about the importance of of those little guys because these are a little bit easier to love than a lot of the other <laughs> insects. So, and of course that's where my interest lies, but I always have to put in a bit of a plug uh, for all the other insects as well because they are really important and, and not, not all of them are doing well. So it, it's an important thing. Yeah, that's actually, I, I really like your point of it's true. All insects are important, not just mm -hmm. the bees as much as we love them. And mm -hmm. um, I know uh, a few people that, they get the heebie-jeebies. They they totally mm -hmm. despise moths, and moths are another pollinator as well. And somebody's got to love them too, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, good points for sure. Uh, you're definitely well versed in your topic at hand. Um, I also thought that was also really um, a good point with um, how much biomass they produce. That's something mm -hmm. that people don't really think about because, like you say, they're so small, and yet I suppose if you if you <laughs> piled them all up there's probably going to be a layer all over the entire surface of the earth mm -hmm. um so it's it it boggles your mind that they're so small but they have such a big impact i guess so amazing uh and the fact that it goes both ways they feed other species they also feed on other species so it's mm -hmm. a uh, a cyclical mutual circle of life type of thing uh very cool uh all right now this is where we could talk about this part all day long but I think what we're going to do is generalize about um, some of the different groups. And then because your specialty is the bees and they are the largest group by far, we'll spend more time talking about um, some of the, the families within the bee group. But uh, the different pollinator groups that we have within Alberta and, you know, pro probably worldwide, pretty much, it's going to be these groups are going to be present everywhere. It's just which species are in each of the locations, right? So we have uh, some birds like hummingbirds and whatnot, uh, butterflies, moths, flies, 
of course, our lovely bees, wasps, and uh, beetles. I, I don't know if I'm missing any or not, but those are the ones that I can think of as far as the general groups. Anyone? I guess I'll just add to that is that everything that this is a flower is essentially can be a pollinator, right? So anything that is on a flower and then moves to another flower. And, and you know, I, I came across, I don't know what I was doing. I came across a word, Latin word for snail pollination. So like, there's, mm, you know, I guess in the pollinator world, there are important pollinators that play major role. Like, I guess, yeah, the difference is playing larger and smaller roles in pollination, right? So, and for some sure. of that pollination, I'm sure is accidental. I think bats may be pollinators sometimes too. Oh, but, right. Well, um, I was thinking yeah. bats more in, in the tropical countries and maybe not as much sure, because yeah. they're insect eaters. However, because they are directly tied to the insects, it could be accidental too, right? You're right. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I also was wondering, I don't know if you know, certain like micro, like a small, much smaller organisms than the insects, do it, if any of them have any role in pollination or not, because I'm not as familiar with that. I, it was a question that I had th rolling around my head, though. I would say anything that's like super, super small, like perhaps what you're referring to probably wouldn't have a major role because it would take them a long time to move. Mm -hmm. And because they, if they're small, they couldn't physically transport that much pollen. Do you know what I mean? I guess I was thinking of something like... And this this is because my imagination runs wild. Something like, okay, you have a fungus and it blows its spore load. And what if it shot some pollen of something else somewhere else along with it or something? I don't know. But um, but yeah, again, that's probably going to be a more minor thing and probably more accidental if it were to happen. Right, um, yeah. But okay. And then getting into within those, I, I believe we have about five species of hummingbirds that... Uh, they, they don't stay here all winter, but they, they come in and they are resident during the summer. Now that's five species of bird compared to, oh, roughly how many native bee species are there in Alberta? <laughs> well, we have 321 on record, but we expect that number is actually quite higher. I even heard rumors of 322 that they discovered a new one or something, but I don't know. Again, well, we things change all the time. Well, I guess to speak to that, yeah, so there, so on record, what I mean by that is the federal status of wild species. So the federal government every five years produces a list of our wild species and then assigns a conservation status ranking to them. So in Alberta, they have on record from their last status report, 321. But we did add a bumblebee to the species record in our 2018 provincial monitoring that we did. Ah, okay. um, and we expect that we may, you know, we could add other species to that as well. We just haven't finished up the, uh, the identification aspect of that project. But but researchers certainly expect that number is quite a bit higher. We just haven't um, we just haven't found all the species that we have, and and certainly these aren't species that are new to science necessarily. In most cases, they're definitely not. They're just not on record for the province yet because mm -hmm. nobody's you know taken the time to identify them and, and report it essentially. Yeah, well they're they're small. I mean, you're going to sit there and count every little bee. <laughs> you know? I'm sure there's a lot of scientific. Uh, you know, the grid and the and the checking and the capture methods and all that kind of checking nests and everything else. But I mean, because they're small, you're always going to miss something. But uh, but yeah, that just puts it in perspective. So something like the birds, there might be five species or so, and then the bees upwards of over 300. So um, they are by far our biggest group of pollinators in Alberta, across Canada and probably worldwide. Within that group, are there any particular um, bees of note for conservation purposes? Like they're quite scarce or rare at this point? Yeah. So again, that same federal government wild species status report. Uh, so they, again, list all the species and then they assign a conservation status ranking. Um, so that's like provides a good indication as to whether or not a species is doing good or doing well. Um, and then uh, some species have gone on to be um, assessed by COSIWIF which is the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada. And they then propose uh, or provide a, a, a status assessment, and then it may or may not go on to be listed under the Federal Species at Risk Act. So in Alberta, let me back up. So in Alberta, about 50% of those 321 native bee species are secure or apparently secure. About a quarter of them are unrankable because of data deficiencies. So we just mm -hmm. simply don't know enough about how they're doing. And then a little less than a quarter are, uh, I think it's vulnerable, imperiled, or critically imperiled. Um, so, so if you look at that in the big picture, about 50% of our bees are okay. The other 50% are either data deficient or not doing great, or, you know, apparently declining. So to speak more specifically, there are currently four bumblebee species that are, have been assessed by Kosiwik. 
Uh, and then uh, there's another there's another sweat bee that's being proposed uh, to have an assessment done. And of those, two of them are listed under the Federal Species at Risk Act. Uh, one is endangered, and I believe one is special concern. I'm not quite sure. So, uh, interestingly, um, you know, there's been uh, the, uh, the endangered bumblebee species that is that is listed as endangered under the Species at Risk Act is a coptoparasite. So it's not a regular bumblebee. Used to be in its own genus. Now it's just in a subgenus under the bombus uh, bumblebee genus, and uh, so it, it invades other bumblebee nests. So it's really cool, kind of like the street strategy is very interesting. <laughs> Sounds kind of mean, but they invade other bumblebee nests. They fight the queen uh, of the established nest basically to the death, and then if the coptoparasite is successful, she'll take over the nest and start laying eggs and force the workers to rear her offspring. Uh, so yes, it's maybe. been the decline. The other bumblebees that have had status assessments by or have been assessed by Kosiwik are supposedly like the preferred host species. So they've declined. And then that's provided that's resulted in, in uh, subsequent catastrophic declines or, you know, very severe declines of the coptoparasite that relies on those host species. So um, and then one of the reasons why uh, the host species have declined is because of uh, uh, disease that we think went through managed bumblebee populations. So we use bumblebees for greenhouse pollination, and so we've been domesticating them for years, decades and decades. And we think, you know, a disease went through the managed population, spread to the wild, which had like really pushed down um, a few bumblebee species, the uh, species that we have in Alberta, and um, and they they're not doing super well. And then of course this coptoparasite that that relies on them is also not doing very well. So it's a bit of a cautionary tale there. But there are other things that are impacting our bumblebees as well. So there's always a threat of, you know, well, there are there's always diseases and predators and parasites and mites and fungi and bacteria and things that are impacting their populations naturally. And those would be things that they evolved with. We are, of course, uh, always concerned about the introduction of novel diseases. Think like coronavirus in humans, for example, right? We don't have any natural defenses. So things like that can be catastrophic, can be very, very problematic. So there's diseases, new or existing. There are things like habitat loss is a major, major driver um, in bee declines. Um, and uh, pesticides, you know, chemicals, some of these insecticides, for example, are, you know, designed to kill insects. Um, and they're not all created equal with the, the risk that they pose to bees, but um, by their nature, they, they can be harmful. Um, and then things like climate change as well and, and, and some other factors. But it's kind of like the big overview of kind of what the status of bees in Alberta, how they're doing and, and why some of them are different. Yeah, it's like always a, a looming threat, right? We need to be careful to make sure that that doesn't happen because just like the coronavirus in humans, yeah, you know, the bees don't have defenses against new diseases. It can be very problematic. Yeah, and they could they could come in with something like the honeybees or you know bees that are imported. It also could come mm-hmm. in with other items like whether there's something on, I guess, food products or agriculture products or basically anything that comes in um, could have an effect. So. It's good to be aware of um, what you're doing uh, and invasives of all kinds, actually. Uh, we were talking about that in another episode. Um, things could come in on, you, you know, your footwear, your boats, your clothing. Your, you just don't know. Um, and yeah, we can't... you know, interestingly, I wear two hats, actually. And my other hat is an executive, executive director of the Alberta Invasive Species Council. Oh, wow. What don't you do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but yeah, if you're interested in talking about that, I'd be more than happy about lots of really new exciting invasive species oh, <laughs> in man. Alberta we well. should we should have had you on that other episode we'll have to have you back for for a part two on that then yeah definitely <laughs> oh, then, yeah. small world um well i guess it shows that a lot of these things it's it's all connected right so if somebody's passionate about the environment and and conservation nature they're probably going to be more involved in more than one part of it anyway so that's pretty cool so yeah i think where we were getting to was um, you've been talking about the endangered pollinators, the um, the reasons why some of them were becoming that way. And I was mentioning with climate change that um, so, some of the bees are moving northward from other places, which is possibly pushing out some of the native species or changing the, the landscape that way. But other ones are coming down farther from the north. Like basically things are just all in flux and um, it's a it's a constantly changing uh, landscape with what's going on. And um, this goes back to our regenerative landscapes, whatever we can do to help preserve what we have and help kind of recreate as best as we can these environments uh, so that we can slow down the climate change and hopefully at some point maybe reverse it. But could you tell us maybe, actually, I think I want everybody to have a go at this. Uh, 
because we're we're really focusing on the bees because we all love them so much does could if everybody could give me their i guess favorite native bee pollinator or an interesting story about them or a question that you might have about them and uh, then i'm sure megan could answer it how about we start with uh dan because we haven't heard too much from dan yeah i'm the quiet one of the group um that's what he says (laughs) (laughs) i mean i like to think so um so our favorite pollinator that is a bee or or a story that you or, have about one or a question that you have for uh, Megan or just something about a more specific Well, I mean, <laughs> it's not very interesting and I already kind of briefly talked about it. But yeah, I got stung by a bee when I was very young. I'm not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like it. If I, I vaguely remember because, again, this is I think it was like six or seven because oh, um, you know, I was playing on a trampoline uh, with my cousins and then. There was a bee flying around and it got on my head and I was kind of just brushing it off. But then it decided um, to sting me like right, uh, I think like right underneath the nail of like one of my fingers. So like, yeah, it hurt a lot and (laughs) took a while for my uncle to like, like get the uh, stinger out of there. But um, oh, if the stinger was in there, it was probably a honeybee because Megan, you can probably... Correct me if I'm wrong. Are they not the only ones that lose their stingers? Yeah, that's correct. So honeybees have barbs on their stingers, and when they, after they've stung you, they go to fly away. It actually the stinger stays in your skin because of those barbs, and they typically will rip off like the base of their abdomen as well. Um, so ba- it's crazy. basically suicide. So they really don't want to do it unless mm-hmm. they absolutely have to. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, so I didn't think it was go, a wasp. Dan. And oh, sorry, <laughs> I apologize on behalf of my six seven year old self um (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah so i mean that's kind of my (laughs) story with bees uh but in terms of like a bee that i do like i had to do a project uh when i was at lakeland uh, because we took a few wildlife courses and one of them uh we had to do a presentation on forget what the broad overall topic was but i chose alfalfa leafcutter bees now i don't think they're native to alberta I thought we had some leafcutter bees, maybe that are native, but um, yeah, I'm not 100% right. sure. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I always thought they were kind of cool, just how they kind of make their habitats and uh, whatnot. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my kind of favorite. Cool. Bee. Yeah. What a, pro- what a project to have in school, eh? <laughs> yeah, like it, it was fun. Again, I don't know if Kevin would even remember uh, kind of what the focus of that project was, but. Yeah, I, I just remember doing that uh, presentation in particular, and I really enjoyed kind of looking at, yeah, how they make their habitats, what kind of what their range are, and yeah, just all kind of interesting facts about just this one species out of <laughs> the hundreds of species that we have here. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. And Kevin, how about you? Yeah, so Dan was talking about that project. I actually remember the project, but I don't remember why we were doing that. <laughs> <laughs> The species I chose was hoverfly. So they kind of look like wasp, but they're not actually wasp because they don't sting you. And they are good pollinators and they're natives too. But um, I'm just wondering, like, because everyone has mixed feeling about wasps, like the yellow jacket. I don't know. I I think they are native to North America, like a large area in North America. And people always have mixed feeling about that because they were saying, some people are saying that they are pollinators. They do do the pollination and all those stuff. But some people at the same time, they are saying that, well, they don't do as good a job compared to other bees and like other pollinators. So I just want to know more about that if possible. Yeah, okay, so there are, we do have like introduced wasps, we have lots of native wasps. Wasps are very, um, they get a bad rap, you know, they really do, and some of them are pretty aggressive, I guess. Um, So, yeah, so we have social wasps, like we have social bees, right? They have a queen, the queen lays all the eggs, they have the same life cycle as a bumblebee. And those would be the wasps, like yellow jackets, bald-faced hornets. Um, you know, some of those guys will nest underground. Some of them will, like, make paper, net, uh, paper uh, nests, essentially, right? Um, but then we have lots and lots and lots of solitary wasps, right? So just like bees, the wasps are really, really diverse. 
they're less well understood than bees. There's more people studying bees than wasps, and there's not probably not enough people studying bees, right? So, uh, but there's lots and lots of solitary wasps as well, and different types of wasps. Um, uh, wasps are pollinators, certainly, and they are they they, they kind of provide a double whammy. So they're pollinators, um, but they also provide pest control control services. So they they as adults, wasps will visit flowers and drink the nectar from flowers. So they are flower visitors, but they're not actively collecting pollen. Uh, so that said, when bees are actively collecting pollen, they will actually groom themselves and pack the pollen into a pollen baskets somewhere on their body to bring back to feed their developing bees. Now, sometimes, you know, you'll see a bee completely covered in pollen and it just haven't, hasn't groomed itself yet. So, so if the bee is completely covered in pollen, then that pollen is available to pollinate other plants. If the bee has groomed itself and it's packed it into the pollen basket, the pollen is less available then, typically, not always, but typically less available to pollinate. Now, wasps are not collecting pollen, and they're less furry, so they have less kind of pollen on them, but they are visiting flowers and bringing nectar, so they will inadvertently pollinate plants as well. So they are pollinators, but they, they, they don't collect pollen because they don't feed their developing wasps pollen. They feed the developing wasps other insects, so they provide that pest control service. So if you're a gardener, uh, you want wasps in your backyard. Um, certainly, you maybe don't want like a yellow jacket nest or something like that because they can get quite aggressive. Um, but if you can live with them, I would always encourage you to live with the wasps um, as much as you can. Obviously, people's level of risk is different and, and that sort of thing. But, um, but wasps definitely have a role to play in our ecosystems and for pollination and for pest management. There you go. So that satisfies your good to know. question. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> during summertime, I always go out in the backyard and sometimes like the wasp is pretty bad. I'll just go out with like a flip flop in my hand and I'll just start killing them. Now I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is always where the, the knowledge part helps, though, right? Like everybody does something until they get the full story. For me, it's tough because there's a lot of bee stories I could have. Um, I guess Kevin kind of stole one of mine because I was going to talk about the bald-faced hornets, but I'll try to pick a different one. I have, well, every year, because I'm transplanting uh, seedlings and doing stuff, I have this place out in the shade table or whatever, and I'll have all the plants there, and I'll be transplanting away. And uh, last summer, it was the coolest thing. I had um, a couple sweat bees come to visit. And of course, yes, I was sweating or perspiring, as we ladies like to say. It was the coolest thing. Uh, they weren't really afraid of me, uh, despite being so tiny. They'd come up and they were actually uh, taking, obviously getting the minerals and salts from my skin, from the, from the perspiration. And they, they tickle when their little proboscis sits there and laps it up. Uh, but they actually hung out with me for quite some time. And I was able to get, it, it was a little bit blurry, but I was able to get some video footage of them. And I just thought they were so cool. Um, and it made me, actually, it was, it was that that made me go back and look at, well, geez, how many, I guess, distinct types of bee, native bees do we have? Like we've got ones that, that uh, the mining bees that dig, uh, we've got the uh, mason bees that build, we've got the leafcutter bees that cut the leaves to uh, plug up their cells for their nests and that kind of thing. Like there's, there's so many kinds and it just, it just boggles my mind that so many of them are in a very close proximity. I guess it, my question then to Megan would be different bee species have, like, are they quite territorial or do they share? I mean, I have seen different bees on the same flower even, but how, how willing are they to share with others or how do they get along with others versus um, territorial like uh, I know at nesting time when they're raising their young or whatever, uh, some of the ones like the ball-faced hornets can be quite territorial, which is why they get more aggressive. So I guess that would be kind of my query to Megan is um, what bees tend to get along better with others and what bees are less social? Um, well, like there's a few things there. So first of all, um, it depends. <laughs> yes, of um, course. It's like people. Yeah, they're very like, much like people. <laughs> Well, and you're talking, we're talking about over 300 different species, right? Of bees. Yeah, I know. So it's, it's a it's big like, generalization, but we've got a short podcast. It always podcast. is, yeah. <laughs> but what I would say, especially with bumblebees, that would be my area of expertise. So bumblebees, like, if a bumblebee enters the wrong nest, it's it's a goner. <laughs> so oh, really? Don't like enter, even, even amongst other bumblebees? Well, if, it's, if it enters a different bumblebee nest other than its own, oh, yeah. yeah, it's wow. not going to be, it's bad news. Um, but that said, two bumblebee nests can coexist side by side quite easily. The, the real d danger there is making sure they look different so the bees don't make the mistake of entering the wrong one, right? Uh, um, well, 
What about cuckoo bees then? Because how do they sneak in? Do they look more like their hosts or do they have a smell that disguises them or how do they manage? Yeah. So I, I guess, again, it depends on whether you're talking about like a solitary cuckoo bee versus a bump, like a, the, the citrus, which are the parasitic bumblebees. Um, so the citrus like just invade the nest. And like, so they, they emerge later in the season once the bumblebee nests have, have already established. And then they just go nest searching. You'll see the citrus females um, go nest searching for established nests and then they enter and they just fight. <laughs> so they're, they're up for the fight kind of thing. And speaking of someone who's pinned, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of bees, putting a pin through a citrus, which is again, the bumblebee kleptoparasite, you, you know, they're built for fighting because you, you have to use a lot more force to get the pin through the exoskeleton than you do on a regular bumblebee. So they're built for the fight. So they're more armed other, almost. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then with other like solitary um, be um, uh, nest parasites or kleptoparasites. Um, the it, it depends, but ultimately, it, you know, if you think of the solitary bee life cycle, you know, if you have a stem nesting bee, like a leaf cutter bee or something like that, um, the female is off foraging most of the time. So they just go in and then they lay their egg inside the nest cell. While she's um, gone. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or same thing with ground nesting bees, right? So so it really depends, but. You know, and cuckoo bees, I think when you're talking about being territorial and that sort of thing, it's a bit different, right? Like their like history involves, you know, invading or, or laying eggs in existing nests. But if bees are coexisting together, if they're non-nest parasites, there's not a lot of territory, territorialism or anything like that. Um, but again, if, in the case of all bees, if they do enter the wrong nest, that'll be bad news for them pretty quick. Okay, very cool. All right. So now we're going to put you on the spot. Can you, I, I'm sure you've got lots of stories, but could you tell us maybe one in particular that stands out of your um, whole experience with the native bees that you could share with us? Um, yeah, I guess there's a couple of things. So one would be just kind of a silly story. I was actually giving a presentation about bees uh, in a park amphitheater in uh, at Bove Lake down here in Southern Alberta. And I was presenting, I don't know if there was probably 20 odd people in the audience. It was like a beautiful summer evening. And uh, I was mid-sentence, and I got stung in the forehead by a oh, bald-faced no. hornet. And I watched everybody's face. They saw it happen. I didn't see it happen, but I felt it happen. And I watched their faces, and then I felt the pain. And so and my forehead swelled up a little bit. It was kind of comical. So what are the chances of that, hey? And then um, I guess from my perspective, the coolest thing for me about dealing with bees is having bumblebee boxes and you know active bumblebee colonies in the yard. Uh, which of course are it, it's like putting out a birdhouse, right? So the birds may or may come not may or may not come and nest in your birdhouse. The same thing with the bumblebees. But getting to like experience that and to like see them coming and going and just sitting and watching them. My favorite thing to do is to just sit and watch bees and watch them kind of come and go, watch them groom themselves, watch their little behavior. They'll stick up their middle leg as a warning <laughs> yeah. sign to you. You know, just kind of interacting with them. You know and and, and I, I'm not a fan of winter. I can't wait for winter to be over because there's no plants and no bees to look at. And, and we are, you know, it is bee season right now. So this time of year, I just want to be outside um, watching them and observing them and getting to kind of interact with them. It's always special and it's always really, really cool. Yeah. And it's an, it's an ongoing day-to-day story. Like there's always yeah, something yeah. different to see, right? Uh, Dan exactly. was mentioning that in, a, in one of our other episodes as well as, as why, one of the reasons why we're involved with the entire regenerative landscape as opposed to one part is because then you get that whole connectivity the whole uh basically a, a whole entire movie instead of one scene you know um so that's really cool um now i know we were kind of talking about some of the uh pollinator threats i was going to get into specifically uh so native versus non-native pollinators um, maybe you can tell us, apart from honeybees, uh, if there are some other uh, non-native pollinators that come to mind and uh, what the difference is. I'm not going to judge good, bad or whatever, just basically pros and cons, the, the, the differences between what the native bees have to offer for pollinating versus uh, ones that are non-native and what the ramifications might be between them. Yeah, sure. So, you know, there's, we typically focus in on managed versus non-managed bees. So we've got our wild bees and managed bees. So uh, when we talk about managed bees, we're talking about, you know, a little less than a handful of species. Honeybees are obviously the most prevalent um, uh, managed bee we have in Alberta. When we talk about honeybees, we're typically talking about a single species, even though there are a handful of honeybee species across the world and subspecies, et cetera. 
Um, honeybees are a big deal in Alberta. Like we have over 40% of Canada's honeybee hives. We're a major honey exporter. Uh, and we use honeybees extensively for crop pollination. So we have uh, over 40% of Canada's honeybee hives, which is a big number. That number's doubled since 1987. Um, and it continues, you know, to grow on and off. There's stops and spurts with um, colony, honeybee colony growth or increases, I should say, uh, in Alberta. So there's honeybees, there's alfalfa leafcutter bees that Dan had mentioned, um, and so those are another non-native species, and Dan was correct. Yeah, they are a non-native species, but we do have a number of native leafcutter bees. So the alfalfa leafcutter bees are the ones you see in the te triangle-like tents out in the field, the crop fields, um, and they are a solitary uh, bee pollinator, really good at pollinating alfalfa, of course. Um, then we have domesticated bumblebees, which are actually quite problematic. So again, I think I, I mentioned that a little bit earlier, talking about, you know, to have domesticated bumblebees, uh, leaves in greenhouses, and you know, uh, we think that they kind of facilitate the spread of this nosema, this bacteria, to um, the wild populations, and that's been a major cause. Of, um, so we still we don't use the same species we were using uh, for greenhouse pollination. We use now a different species that's not native to Western uh, Canada. It's called the common eastern, um, and now we're finding the common eastern bumblebee in feral situations in Alberta. So in southern Alberta, where we have lots of greenhouses, so. So in my mind, you know, that's a big problem because the spread, the, the, the chances of introducing and spreading diseases, you know, the more closely related these bees are, the more serious those implications can be. And so we're using bumblebees, we have lots of native bumblebees, and, and that's problematic. So we need to tighten up some of the rules on some of these managed bees um, 100%, and the domesticated bumblebees are, are definitely problematic. The other group of bees that I'll address are, I guess, a very kind of addressed one, but are, I guess it's the practice of purchasing bee cocoons for people to release in their backyards. Right. So this is becoming all the rage along with bee hotels, right? So you hear about these things all the time. And, and so, um, you know, there are some good suppliers that are trying to do what's right here and to, to serve that demand for people who want these things. There are typically two species that people can buy. One is, of course, the alfalfa leafcutter bee because that's an easy to manage bee. Um, and so you literally buy the cocoon, you put it in your yard, you release it. The other species is the, uh, is the blue orchard mason bee, which is a native mm. species. But there are two subspecies. And um, typically, if you order a blue orchard mason bee, you're likely getting the western subspecies, which is um, native to west of the Rockies. So depending where you are in Alberta, you're probably not going to get the correct subspecies. That said, there are some producers that are working to kind of match that up now. Again, the problem here is there's a real lack of regulations um, on movement of these things. And you can even go on Kijiji and other places and find people selling bee cocoons. And they don't even know what species they have. They're not checking for diseases. You know, I, I think that this, there's a term that's been called bee washing. It's been coined recently by researchers. And it is, you know, the selling of bee stuff or bee ideas or bee industries um, as a green idea when, in fact, it's not at all. So the selling selling of these cocoons is one example of that. So certainly, like I said, it's very cool to get to interact and be up close and personal with these bees and to watch them emerge. But is is it a concert? Is it something that's helping bee populations? Is that something you can do to help save the bees? Is that something that you can help you know promote diversity and conservation? No, it's not because you know you just don't know what you're getting. Um, in some cases and in other cases, you may be introducing poorly adapted bees that'll mate with the bees that you have, or you may be introducing diseases. So we, we don't recommend that as a conservation practice, but it's very popular right now. Um, when we talk about managed bees on a whole, too, I think it's really important. There's two concerns about those managed bees. One is competition for food, because we know that there's major overlap in the food that native bees and managed bees eat. And then also um, the spread of diseases, which we talked about a lot. Um, so certainly competition for food resources only really matters if there are limited food resources, right? But so so when, so I'll ask you guys, so when are there limited food you know, I think we can, you know, probably put some good guesses in there, but we don't know. And the problem is that there's no real guidelines, regulations, legislation for density or placement of managed bee hives or other managed bees for consideration of wild bees. And as we just talked about, you know, not all of our native bees are doing well. Many of them are super data deficient. So we really just need to understand, we need to do more to understand how our native bees are doing. And we also need to, to implement more strict rules around um, those managed bees to, to protect our native bees. When it comes yeah, I, to pollination, um, honeybees on a per bee basis are not great pollinators. It's just simply that we're able to manage them in such massive numbers. So a honeybee hive has got, you know, 40, 50,000 bees in it, whereas native bees, many are solitary or, you know, bumblebees have nests or colonies of 100 or 200 individuals. So the honeybee thing is really, they're just easy to manage and they're easy to move around and there's so many of them. 
But in actuality, our native bees may emerge earlier in the day. They pollinate until later in the day. They'll forage under cooler and wetter uh, conditions. Um, they're, they're typically better pollinators as well. Um, and we need a diversity of bees to pollinate a diversity of flowers too. And that's, that's a whole other thing as well. So hopefully that answered, there was kind of a few questions in there. Hopefully that addressed uh, most of your questions. Um, it was, it's actually, it's very parallel to uh, the plants and the way the invasives are going. So now there's getting to be more regulations about invasive plants, about um, things that are not allowed between provinces or between countries and that kind of thing. And I feel like uh, with the insects, particularly with the, the bees and the pollinators, it won't be far behind. It's just it, everything takes time to catch up to the, to the government, to the legal part of things, right? And they also have to do, it's, it's complicated because they have to do a lot of um, research and looking into what all the ramifications and everything going, not just here and now, but into the future, what the, the consequences will be. Um, so it's, it's trying to figure that all out to determine the best course of action, of course, by which time time passes um and that obviously leads to more issues that have already been happening but they do have to try and be careful as to how they're navigating these issues right so but yeah it used to be i remember when my dad was beekeeping they all got their queens from new zealand and it seemed so far away but it was they were getting them from new zealand because they didn't want to risk um certain diseases that were down in the states and then of course now the africanized bees and all this kind of thing um, and the more, I guess, the more, uh, worldly international travel, all these things that happen, um, and happen quicker, all these things can become more of a problem. So, um, this is ki kind of partly the whole COVID situation too. I mean, if we all just stay home, <laughs> it'll be fine. Right. But it's the fact that people can travel so quickly all over the place now. Um, it's so so fast you can't control the spread of uh disease or or changes in populations or any of this kind of stuff okay we we talked a bit about the pesticides competition by the non-native species the diseases um oh this is something maybe you can add to a little bit um gmo crops um now a lot of native bee species uh are used to wild species of plants some of them are, are species specific but even a lot of them that are generalists there are cer certain types of plants that they gravitate to how did gmo crops come into this and affect um how our native bees are able to to pollinate well i mean i wouldn't i i don't know first of all i've never you know studied up on the topic to be honest with you um but what i would say to that is that um habitat loss is the problem right so we talk about you know, native grasslands are the most endangered ecosystem on the planet and all of those crops come at the cost of native grasslands certainly in alberta right so when we talk about crops uh some of them provide tons of food for bees over a short period of time uh they don't provide a diversity of food which is what bees need and they don't provide nesting resources and they don't provide um that um, the phenology of bloom time throughout the season which is the other thing. and in fact they provide so much food for that short period of time that there's not enough bees in those areas to pollinate the crops which is why we bring in honeybees right to supplement that pollination right it becomes a vicious um, cycle <laughs> it is yeah it really is that's a, a really we could talk about that all day as well but to, to address the gmo crops like when we talk about gmo crops like we can talk about things like canola. So we've modified canola, created canola and modified it so that when we, oh, how does this work? So then you plant seed canola. I think they plant rows of females plants and then rows of male plants. And then they bring in the bees so that they'll cross pollinate because that's how you get the best seed. I think it's been a real a while since I've read up on this as well. So, I mean, that's an example of us modifying and, you know, modifying these plants. Um, and then the bees come in and then they've got to pollinate it. But I think that, the bigger issue really when we talk about agriculture and cropping is that, you know, we need to conserve the native grasslands that we have. We need to protect them from invasive species and from cultivation. Um, and we need to, to increase the, the native plants, you know, just like what you guys were saying you were doing, you know, encouraging people to plant them in their yards and wherever, everywhere. We need to increase the diversity and, and bring back some of those native plants. I think that's really critical. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, I guess my thought with the GMO crops is I know a lot of them, 
because they're so focused on the the food production or oil production or whatever it is that they're they're trying to get that then they end up lacking um they don't have as enough nutritional quality for the the native pollinators as some of the equivalent native species would have native plant species but, um yeah that's probably them- true with oh sorry I was going to say that's probably true with like all crop species, right? Because they've all been modified. And so yeah, it's a modified well, system. And, and I, I was going to say too, the the whole just monoculture thing too, right? Yeah. Like just yeah. having fields and fields of one thing does not feed um, these pollinators for the duration of their season. It's a short time. Um, and like you say, then there's there's not enough for the, the other periods or different food materials. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, in, in other words, basically monoculture and GMO is probably not the best way to go. Diversity, diversity, diversity. And um, I realize this is getting into our third part of our episode, but with the habitats, it's definitely key um, to preserve the existing natural habitat as well as to try and build and create um, as close as we can mimic native habitats for for pollinators and for all the wildlife. Um, now, I know, again, this is something that will trickle over into our next episode, but one of our, I think one of our biggest uh, hurdles, you guys are doing a great job of it. We just need to get it out there as much as we can to anybody who will listen. Uh, education. Lots of people, like I say, the awareness is, is getting to be a, a lot higher than it used to be. Lots of people know about pollinators, why, uh, they know that there's issues, but they don't know uh, where to go for resources or what to do, or they feel like, well, I've just got a little yard, what could I do? Because they feel they need a bigger space or something. Um, And they don't know all the different types of things that could be done because it's, yes, planting the pollinator plants is a big part of it, but there's so many other things like reducing your pesticides, trying to change farming practices, you know, on and on it goes, right? Um, so, uh, I know I would like you to give us your information with, uh, for your website and everything with the Alberta Native Bee Council. And also if there are other resources, whether it's books or other online resources that you know of that people go to, to find out more about, um, pollinators and, and what they can do or where they can go for information. Sure. Yeah. So we do have a website. It's pretty, um, it's pretty bad. It's really a bad website. We're working no, on that. Don't say that. <laughs> no, no. So you what say, I would it's say a work is that in progress. <laughs> it will, it's not, we're abandoning it and creating a new one. Uh, we're a group of biologists, you know, entomologists. <laughs> and so web development is not our forte, but we have some young and very ambitious keen uh, board members that are building a new website as we speak, which is very, very exciting. The website has been a struggle for us. Like I say, like we're biologists, <laughs> and so it's hard to kind of be good at, at, at everything. And certainly that's, that's not our forte. But uh, yeah, so we're building a new website. We've already, you know, developed most of the content. We're going to have uh, descriptions of all of the main bee families, all of the fa- genera that we have on record uh, in Alberta, species lists. Uh, we currently have some of that information on our website, but it's kind of buried. It's hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, so we look, stay tuned for that. In addition, some of the things we have on our current website um, include, you know, a species list of all the bees on record in Alberta, a list of their conservation status assessments. Yeah, I like we that. have a guide to bumblebee queens of southern Alberta, which is still useful for other areas of the province. We are using the results of our provincial monitoring for 2018 to develop new identification resources. So those should be available probably for next season, next spring season. Um, we have a best practices for solitary bee hotels in Alberta. We have um, designs and schematics for bumblebee boxes. So if you wanted to build your own bumblebee box, we also have a citizen science bumblebee box monitoring program that people can participate in. All of that information is on the website. It involves building a bumblebee box, putting it in your yard, and reporting back on activity once a year. So whether or not bumblebees were in there, it's pretty easy. We have, um, yeah, so all of those resources on the website. Um, If I would direct people to external resources would be um, to a book called you're interested generally speaking on bees uh there's a book called the bees in your backyard and it's like a, a book that you can sit down and read uh you know it's not you know it's general reference and you can use it you know to, to help identify as an education resource but it's a very nice book it's really well put together it's a relatively recent publication um and you can find that on amazon or chapters or wherever books are sold um 
The next book I would recommend if you're interested in learning more about bumblebees and um, people, yeah, you know, bumblebees are a lot harder to identify than one might think. We've got, I think, 28 species on record, now 29 in Alberta, but they're hard. They're very difficult. There's a ton of variability within species. There's a bunch of species that are super similar and there's very few characteristics that differentiate them. And there's some that are just really difficult to tell apart. There's just, you know, one species that exhibits all kinds of different color variations. So it's really challenging. So if you're interested in learning more about bumblebee identification, there's a book called Bumblebees of North America by Paul Williams et al. And this was a 2014 publication. It's really, really good. This is not a sit down and read book. This is a dichotomous key that will take you through identifying bumblebee. Uh, and you're typically going to need to have it, um, you know, a specimen if you're going to use this book. Um, but it is a good resource to have. But it, it, what it will do is present all the color variation within a species among queens, workers, and males throughout North America. Uh, keeping in mind, there are some limitations to that as well. But that's a really good resource if you want to learn to identify your bumblebees. And then finally, the um, the Xerxes Society, we've been directing people to one of their publications, which is 100 Plants to Feed the Bees, or to Feed the Pollinators, I think. Feed the Bees, yeah. And so it lists all these different plants, tells you where in North America they should be planted, or at least where they're native to, and which pollinators are going to be interested in them. So it's a really good resource. We are also working right now on a um, plant list for Alberta for pollinator Ooh, plants. Nice. So we took the results of my master's and other colleagues' master's data uh, and all of the existing plant lists um, that cover our ecoregions in Alberta. And so we cross-referenced all of those. And then we also cross-referenced the list with um, availability of native plant suppliers. Because it's all fine and good to tell someone that something's a great bee plant, but if you can't get access to it, then it's no good. So uh, so we cross-referenced it with the, the, the native plant nurseries uh, and then we also listed bloom time, uh, amount of sun required, um, amount of moisture required, whether it's short, you know, medium or tall, um, and all those characteristics so that people can plan out that pollinator garden that has plants that bloom all season long, that are different colors, that are different shapes and sizes kind of thing. That's awesome. So I'll talk to you about linking available. up on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll, we hope to have it ready. Um, I've got a hard deadline of May 14th, which I'm really hoping to, <laughs> to meet. Um, and so we will have uh, that finalized at that point. Then we just need to kind of do the design and make it look pretty before we put it out to the public. So hopefully we'll have that available very, very soon. But we hope that'll be a good resource for people. Like you said, you know, what can people tangibly do? Well, what I say, it doesn't matter if you live in a condo in downtown Edmonton, or if you live out in the country on a farm, there are very small things you can do. So if you're that condo dweller, you can put a bumblebee box on your balcony. You can put a basket of flowers out. And uh, if you go into the greenhouse, wherever you are, and ask them which are the good bee flowers, they should be able to tell you. Um, or you can consult, of course, our native plant list. There are lots of other lists you can find for ornamental species as well. Um, and then, uh, so that's, that's simple. That's very simple and something that everybody can do. If you have a backyard, of course, increasing uh, the diversity of plants that you have, making sure there's something blooming all season long, incorporating native plants can be really, really great. And, and we encourage people to start small. You know, you don't have to take over your whole lawn, tear out all your grass, but start small and start, you know, incorporating those native plants. And then, of course, if you live in rural Alberta, you know, again, focusing on maintaining if you have any um, remnants of native grassland can serve those. If you have other areas where you can incorporate, you know, maybe throw in a few native plant plugs here and there. Maybe start just, you know, seeding with native plant seed and just seeing what takes. It can be hard to establish native plants from seed, as I'm sure you know. But, you know, if you've got that land and you're willing to kind of wait it out and you don't want to put a ton of effort in, there's small little things you can do that will help supplement um, food for native bees. Yeah, actually, um, uh, it reminded me, because you, you're talking about the Xerxes uh, Society. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ha I picked up another book that I thought was pretty good. Now, granted, it's it's more general for North America, but a lot of it still applies to here. Uh, called attracting native pollinators, and it's it's not as specific to the to the bees. It it includes um, a lot of the other pollinator species as well, like the birds and the butterflies and the moths and the all that kind of stuff. But um, still, a lot of overlap. Some of the the, the plant species are the same as here. Um, some are different, so you got to pick and choose. But it's a it's definitely got a good uh, meat and potatoes basis, and you can uh, keep going out from there. Definitely check out the Alberta Native Bee Council. Um, we want to thank Megan Evans again. Um, she's very knowledgeable and makes me feel so small with all of her knowledge about our native bees. Um, she's been great to have on our, our show. Um, but I wanted to do uh, kind of our final thoughts to wrap up. 
I guess we'll start with Kevin this time. Uh, I guess what's the one takeaway that you have on uh, our our actual pollinators uh, or something else that came to your mind that you might want to bring up for Megan? Um, just want to mention the takeaway that don't kill the wasp in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. That's just like something that small. Cause like sometimes people they don't even know. They think something's bad, but it's not actually bad. And like again, like anything in this ecosystem, it plays a part. Doing it, it's doing something to do something good. So yeah, just respect it. Yeah. Um, question for Megan? No, not really. But I have her on Facebook now, so I can just harass her all the time from now. I'm yeah. just asking her about the beekeepers and those stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Megan's gonna but wish yeah. that uh, <laughs> she's gonna she's gonna wish that she never met us. But that's okay. <laughs> um, how about you, uh, Dan? Um. Yeah, I mean, like one thing is just like how much, how many. Yeah, one takeaway out of all this is just like how many different species that are native to Canada and Alberta is crazy. Again, like doing some research when it came to like doing that alfalfa leafcutter bee presentation um, and just kind of over the years of uh, my academics, just like how I, yeah, I didn't realize how many native species that we do have here and how important it is to and I think it's on me for not really, I think, putting more of an effort to kind of understanding that because I understand more with plants because that's more my specialty is, yeah, you don't want to introduce <laughs> like because I would always kind of think that yeah, a pollinator is a pollinator as long as they're kind of doing uh, their job for, you know, uh, pollinating uh, whatever flowering species. That's good. But understanding that no that <laughs> introduced too much of an invasive kind or any other diseases where it could be prevented that yeah it's going to cause a lot of issues so kind of just um for at least for me it's having to do a little bit more research i think as to yeah what's good what's not and what i can do better and then even for our company i'm thinking too uh for me and kevin it's uh kind of relaying that information uh that we've learned today uh reading up a little bit more and uh yeah relaying that to um potential clients that we have because I, I think because I think a big selling point for us when we're talking to clients is I mean of course the idea of regenerative landscapes but a big part of that usually that we try to sell them on is the idea is that this is going to attract pollinators or we're hoping that's going to attract pollinators if you put the right species in the right plant communities and design it the right way so yeah it's kind of I think yeah my one takeaway is <laughs> for me is to do a little bit uh, more research and understanding um, pollinators that we have here. Yeah, I don't know if I have really a question because I think you kind of answered it with kind of the work that you're, uh, well, with that idea of kind of making that network of uh, native plant suppliers and being able to connect that kind of information to uh, the general public was kind of a question I was going to ask. And yeah, you kind of answered it already because I was wondering, like, how do we better communicate to the public of the importance of pollinators, what are native, what aren't, and what people can be doing more and yeah i think i think he answered that pretty well already so nice um and for me i think um well it's, it's kind of humbling because on the one hand it can be mind-boggling to think that there's there's so many uh pollinator species out there there's there's so much uh room for improvement and things that everybody should be doing uh but i guess my big thing is just keep it real. Um, I don't think people should be shaming others because they're doing the wrong things um, or because they're, they should be doing different things or whatever. I look at it more as use it as an opportunity to educate and realize that everybody's got to start somewhere. So start like what Megan was saying, start small, keep it manageable. You can't change the world and save the planet overnight, but you can plant a pot, you can put up a bee house, you can share some information you've learned with your neighbor, you can go online or read a book, you can, you know, do these small things. And over time, it will build and be, and become something bigger. Um, and then as a larger number of people that are more educated, then we can do 
have have a lot more impact on the world as a whole. So do what makes sense. I mean, people are going to need to still uh, grow food and not all of that is native. Uh, don't feel bad about that. But maybe it just means, all right, in amongst your garden vegetables, you're putting some native pollinators as well. Like there's always a way to make things better. So just kind of, like I say, keep it real, keep it manageable, and just keep working towards doing things that are better instead of biting off such a big piece of the pie that you can't possibly get through it and getting frustrated and throwing your hands up in the air. So yeah, just do do something small and build on that. Use some some good building blocks and as a whole, we will get there. Um, and on that note, I think that ends this episode of Regenerative Landscapes. We want to thank Megan Evans from the Alberta Native Bee Council again. And we hope that you guys will... Uh, uh, you know, I, w- I would like to put this out there. I know it's probably, you know, crazy of me. But guys, if we can get 100 more likes just for this pollinator um, free part series, I will give somebody uh, a free planter of native plants. And Megan, for you being on the show today, um, we'll, we'll have to arrange to find out where you are because I do believe you're somewhere down in southern Alberta. But uh, I will find a way to get you some native pollinator plants for uh, for you being on the show. So I just want to say thank you very much. It's been great having you on, and I'm hoping maybe we can snafu you into doing some other episodes with us. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, guys. Thanks for the opportunity to be here.